second installment of our podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, co-produced by FASTA and the EHFF, the European Health Futures Forum, and Caroline White. And I'm Sean O'Conline, a Glowerthlev O'Reilly Corkerina. In this podcast, our guest host, David Summick of the EHFF, will interview two ethicists, Henk van Eyl and Richard Turnbull. They'll be reacting to a talk given by Fasters and Ryan on the concept of enough, which we'll be hearing as well. This talk by Anne was part of FASTA's December 7th event, Living Well in the Face of Climate and Ecological Crises, which was featured in the last month's podcast. We'll hear Anne refer to other participants in the event from time to time. We'll turn over to David now. Welcome to this podcast. My name is David Somek. I'm the Network Director of EHFF, and I'm delighted to welcome two colleagues, Richard Turnbull from CEME and Hank Den Il, who both philosophers and experts in the issue of ethics, which is what we wanted to explore in relation to Anne Ryan's talk. I'm very interested in the ethical aspect because 10 years ago, a year or two after Anne published her book in 2009, I was at a meeting on transformational change. We had a lecture from an elderly Jesuit in Lisbon on ethics and well-being, and it opened my eyes, I must say, to some issues that as a professional uh, working in health for many years, I've been aware of, but never was able to put more clearly into words in relation to issues about the balance between sense and risk-benefit and the whole question of the interface between moral education and the biomedical field. So that's where I'm coming from. Richard, would you like to say something about yourself? Hello, thank you very much indeed. Delighted to be taking part in this podcast. My name is Richard Turnbull. I'm the director of the Centre for Enterprise Markets and Ethics. And really what our purpose is, is to try to bring different disciplines to the same table, business, economics, philosophy, ethics, and other disciplines as well, to work together on some of the ethical challenges that we face, the environmental and social and governance challenges that we all face. My own background is I have been a chartered accountant working in the City of London, so I've been at that bit of the coalface, if you want to put it that way. I'm an ordained minister of the Church of England. I've led an Oxford college, and now I run this think tank, and I'm also a visiting professor at St Mary's University in Twickenham. My own interests, I'm interested in the nature of work, particularly as we move into a more challenging environment, the challenge of robots and uh, artificial intelligence and so on. And I'm interested in the historical approaches to good business and to sustainability. And I've done a lot of work on, for example, the uh, Quaker businesses of the 18th and 19th centuries. So that gives you a little bit of information about me, and I look forward to our conversation. Thanks, Richard. Hank? Yes, David, thank you. It's very nice to be here. It's actually the first podcast I've ever been in. It's a thrilling honor. <laughs> so I work for the Netherlands School for Public Administration as a philosopher, teacher, and a researcher. So it has actually two branches. So there, it is a school, a kind of small university for public servants. So it's post-academic education. Uh, and partly it is a think tank in which we do all kinds of research, mostly in the forms of essays and books to sometimes critically, sometimes helpfully 
reflect on questions in public administration. And so in my main interest is ethics in public administration and also supervision and relation between state and civil society and also partly market. So for example, beginning to start a research on the role of private equity investment in healthcare and healthcare in the Netherlands is civil society. So it's not from the state. So just an example. And what I really like to do is to make sure that all the decisions we make in public administration are not only effective in the administrative sense of the word, but are also reflected ethically and also politically. So that's my interest. Uh, I have a special interest in healthcare. It's also because I, before I started here, I worked for the Netherlands Association for Supervisory Boards in Healthcare. And I write my dissertation at the Vrije Universiteit Amsterdam on the question of what wise supervision is. And I'm almost finished. <laughs> Uh, for quite some time now, I'm almost finished, <laughs> but it will be ready soon. So I hope this gives you some insight. I'm looking forward to this very good subject. That's great. Look, thank you both. Okay, so let's listen to a recording of Anne's talk, and then I'll invite you to comment. Hi, everyone. I'm Anne, Anne Ryan, and I have been a member of FASTA for quite a long time. And in fact, my first kind of formal engagement with FASTA was in 2009, there was the new emergency conference and out of that came the book Fleeing Vesuvius. And I was just writing a book called Enough is Plenty at that time. And Richard Douthwaite, our sadly missed uh, one founder, asked me, would I speak about the practice and philosophy of enough? So I'm here still making the case for it 10 years later. And it's an ongoing project for me. It's, you know, it's been in my life since before 2009 as well. So I suppose I just want to draw attention to the word enough before I start, that in modern English, the word enough has often come to be associated with sort of mediocrity or asher it'll do. You know, it's not really of high quality or of high standard. But actually, if we look at other languages, and, and Irish is one of them, the phrase gullor means enough and it means plenty. So it's all about the richness that's inherent in sufficiency and having enough. And I like the word that Juliet Shard, the American sociologist, has chosen as well. I think she might have made it up called plenitude. So I'm here to make the case for a caring sufficiency instead of the extractive excess that we see all around us, which, of course, is part of our problems. And also that whole extractive worldview, it's extracting all the, re the resources of nature, but it's extracting from people as well. It's expecting us to just you know, give every ounce of our energy. Capitalism tries to steal every bit of our time, every bit of our energy, fill up all of our lives. And it separates us and dehumanizes us, I think. So I, I also just also came across a book last week that's just been published called The History of Thrift. And the author was interviewed and she drew attention to the word thrift. It comes from the word thriving. So about thriving and flourishing for human beings. So for me, the whole concept of enough brings together ecology, ethics, economics, aesthetics and beauty. And so ecology is really about, I suppose, how everything is connected and how we're all totally interdependent and also diversity, how everything exists in relation to everything else and humans included. Ethics then is really another name for politics, I suppose. It's uh, about equality, sharing, sufficiency for everyone, kind of that ethical austerity. The austerity and thrift have got bad names, but we do need an ethical austerity, uh, social and ecological justice. And then the whole, for me also, enough has a special aesthetic. If we think about 
things being just the right size or just like gold, like baby bear's porridge, not too hot, not too cold, but just right. There is a beauty attached to that. And if you think of even a work of art, if it exceeds, if it goes on for too long, if the painting goes outside its frame, it's not beautiful. But if it remains within its limits, it has a beauty. And ecology, to me, does that. And so does enough. And then, of course, there's the whole notion of eco economics. And we are, everyone at this stage in this room, I would say, understands that that word eco, meaning home, is the root of both ecology and economics. So it's about how we organize our home planet and where we are at home to ourselves, I think, is in the concept of enough. So for me, enough is a kind of a shorthand. It's a platform for talking about all of those things. And it's a response to that extractive worldview. And as activists, too, we often ex try to extract an awful lot from ourselves. You know, Leontine talked about burning out and we put our bodies on the line. And very often we do crash and uh, in, that, in those despairing moments or simply because we've worked so hard. The concept of enough, of course, is very old. You can see that in the language. It belongs in the in indigenous traditions. It's the basis of the commons and the commoning movement, commoning practices. It's the basis of a lot of wisdom traditions. The ancient Greeks had the concept of the golden mean. Uh, um, Celtic Christianity had a, a concept of enough. But of course, it's not about going back in a search for some kind of golden origins. It's about making it anew for today. And like a, so many movements that we're all familiar with have enough at their heart. They're founded on uh, a sense of sufficiency and keeping the economy within the boundaries of the planet. Uh, so you have, you know, the transition towns movement, the cap global carbon, the keeping fossil fuels in the ground, steady state economics and degrowth. They all have enough at their heart. There's a, the Green Christians have a joy in enough movement, which is very ecological. The whole, all sorts of um, intelligent agricultural practices have sufficiency at their heart, where they're not trying to extract maximum from the land and the soil, but to have modest yields that can be sustainable. Myself, I'm involved with the movement for basic income in Ireland and internationally. And that's, to me, enough for everyone. Sort of a modest amount of cash is, is at the heart of that. And also, if you think about sinks for our waste, if you think about the atmosphere as a sink where we're putting our emissions, we mustn't overwhelm them. So enough is at the centre of that. While it's a lovely, it's a philosophical, beautiful thing, it's also at the heart of good science. And science and politics, of course, need to come together, which is where some of us fall into despair because that isn't really happening. Uh, so in terms then of what the, the question that John asked earlier on, what sustains us as individuals, as activists trying to change the world where we are putting our bodies and our hearts on the line, I think we need a sort of multiple levels. We need an appropriate balance between a, a kind of a polyculture of a couple of key ingredients that I call at first coping, critiquing, resisting, and creating. And they're not really in any hierarchy. I'll just talk a little bit more about each one of them for a moment. But as we stand in this gap, you know, we, we all know what might be. We do have a vision of a better world, but we also are in this place where things are so awful. And uh, as we're in that gap, I think in order to kind of sustain ourselves, we need to attend to those multiple levels of coping, critiquing, resisting and creating and having an appropriate balance among them. So um, 
you know, Mareg and Leontine were talking about just, and, and John there in one of his questions mentioned despair, just looking things in the face. And critique is part of that. It's, it's, it's that um, slogan, tell the truth. Don't flinch, don't deny or play down what's going on. Pay really close attention. We do need to do that. And we have to resist, we have to strike, we have to refuse to do things, we have to step out of certain ways of being. So we need to do that, but you can't resist alone, so you need an appropriate balance of doing that in your own heart and doing it with other people. Uh, and I think that gives, um, you know, that gives us some energy when we work together with other people. There is also then the whole effort to build or to craft or to create something new. And there are so many pioneering groups in agriculture, in energy, in housing, uh, in ways of living that are trying to do that. They're on the margins at the moment, and they really are the seeds of what we need in the future. But of course, there are so many barriers in their way. But I think it's important to be, to be doing something that's about creating something new. Uh, and again, that, of course, really is impossible to do on your own. You do that with other people. Renewing, I suppose, is part of that, part of that building, rebuilding good stuff that's in decline or that, that is being destroyed by the, the extractive worldview and extractive practices. So helping things like, you know, village shops, uh, family farms, good stuff that, that was in our traditions, trying to renew that. And then really, I suppose, coping is when I started talking about this first, I used to use the word surviving. I was drawing on the eco-theologian Thomas Berry, and he calls it surviving. But for a lot of people, surviving was very, very bleak. So I started using the word coping. So instead of burning out and crashing, I think it's important to have a sense of just appropriate load, knowing when to slow down and to say, say no or to step out of something instead of kind of going all out and crashing. And I was really taken by the analogy of the, the referendum. There's no referendum date. You know, we are in this for the long haul. So we have to, we really do need to know how to cope. But to sort of make that a kind of convivial, beautiful space for ourselves is important rather than an utterly despairing one. While it is important to face up to those dark emotions, we can look after ourselves in that and to try and have that appropriate, that balance and have beauty and joy in our lives, even when things are so awful. So song and music and dance and art uh, really have to be part of that. And of course, they're all overlapping because the arts have a, have a part to play in showing us what could be as well. Uh, so none of those, you know, they aren't the coping, critiquing, resisting and creating and renewing. They're not distinct categories. They, they overlap with each other. So I, I also was sort of taken by the fact that we had the mother and daughter pair talking because I think a lot of this work that we have to do is like the work of a household. And I know John, as a psychologist, will know, as it Winnicott talked about the good enough parent. So being good enough in a household, the work of the household is kind of messy. You might be watching a pot or, or you know, stirring a pot or watching a toddler and organize a meeting on the phone at the same time. So you're doing all those things um, in a kind of simultaneous attention to lots of things in a good enough fashion. And actually, what's at the heart of that? It's care. It's not that kind of commercialized, degraded sort of care that we see in institutional settings, but just a real care from the heart for the world. And the concern with, with healthy systems that are good enough, but also with the individual within them, who's able to be individuated 
and distinct and unique. And I was, before I came, I thought I might be doing some slides. And I had a lovely picture of the book called uh, Always Coming Home by Ursula Le Guin. Some of you might know it. It was written in 1988. And it's the most beautiful picture of, a, of an ecological society post-collapse, unfortunately. And it has that sense of home and household and thriving and multiplicity at its heart, which enough has as well. So kind of enough of everything, not an excess an excess of anything. And then the whole temporal dimension of enough is really important and it's come up already. We are in this for the long haul, but we need to pay attention to the quality of the present moment as well. And that's part of the, the coping and the beauty and finding an appropriate rhythm and speed for what it is we're doing. And then looking ahead as well to the seventh generation. And I'm struck by so many, of course, young people who are you know, fighting and resisting and creating and doing all those things today, but also by the fact that activism in later life is a real feature for so many of us, that there are people here and everywhere who have been in this struggle and this, this drive for a long time. And how do you maintain your energy for it all as you get older? Uh, and that's something that Richard Douthwaite used to talk about, which always struck me, that we have to stay involved. And I suppose, again, the analogy of the household, even when the children leave home, the parents never really forget, you know, they're, they're always part of the household. So I think enough for me is it's a beacon. It's not a sort of a, a definite picture of how life should be. It doesn't impose any particular way of life. There, okay, there are limits that we need. There are clear scientific limits that we need. But for each one of us, enough is a bit different. It's a, so it's a concept to guide us rather than a fixed destination. And it's about engagement. It really is about just being involved and engaging. And the fact that we make the road by walking, you know, that's the old Frarian phrase that we can't see what's around the corner, but as, as we take steps, then options open up and we become involved with, with other people. This kind of shared imaginary for learning. And my, my own background is as an educator. Um, so I started out like in second, <laughs> second level, but I got into community education where there is much more space for thinking about these kind of concepts. And I think the human capacity to learn is always present and it, there's, no, there's no limit to that. So while we say we need limits, there are certain things that, that we don't need to limit, like our capacity to learn. And I suppose it's not, while I talk about engagement, it's not necessarily to say that we shouldn't think about transcending what's going on as well. It is good to have a vision of what could be, but engagement is probably the best thing that we can do for now. And something that we can get all those different silos to, to look towards together. So I would say, I would like to just finish with a poem, which again, if I had a slide, I'd have up for you, but I'll just read it to you. Because to me, a lot of people tell me I'm naive. They probably tell all of you that you're naive as well. <laughs> and I was just speaking to John Gibbons before we started, and he said, you know, he's often talking in forums where he's the only one talking this language. And I sometimes find that as well. So when I talk about degrowth or sufficiency or steady state, people say, you're crazy. Whereas I think the people who are talking about growth are crazy. <laughs> and I, the, to me, you, can, you could become very cynical. But enough is direct, it's from the heart, it's uncynical, and that to me is what poetry is like. So here's a poem 
Um, it's actually from the Tao Te Ching, and it's translated by that author, Ursula Le Guin, that I mentioned earlier, who wrote the book Always Coming Home. I think we can all learn personally about enough, but society can learn as well. So just to keep that in our hearts. So the poem, as translated by Ursula Le Guin, is called Wanting Less. When the world's on the way, they use horses to haul manure. When the world gets off the way, they breed war horses on the common. The greatest evil, wanting more. The worst luck, discontent, greeds the curse of life. To know enough's enough is enough to know. And that's enough for me, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, that's a fascinating talk, of course, reiterating a lot of what Anne said in her book. Richard, would you like to start with some reflections from your side? Well, I'm enormously grateful for Anne, the clarity of her presentation and uh, the deep level of thinking that has gone into the concept, the uh, practice and philosophy of enough. Uh, now, of course, many aspects of this are relatively familiar to people in my sort of space, if you like. There are those who talk about this idea that we do not have to seek to maximize everything. And certainly in the space that I work in of business and business ethics, one of the big challenges is this emphasis on shareholder value maximization. Dare one say it possibly at the expense of the return to other stakeholders. And obviously the question of sustainability is probably the question of the age. The realization that we need to find new ways of proceeding and new ways of doing things, new ways of being because we simply cannot continue to grow and expand in this unrestricted way. After having said all of that, there were a few things I just wanted to mention for us to think about. I thought one of the greatest strengths of Anne's talk was when she was referring to the need to create something new and she made references to agriculture, to housing, to energy and to rebuild, as she put it, the good stuff. And she quoted village shops and family firms. And I suppose that just generated in my own mind is how do we build a sustainable economic system that enables all people to flourish within the economy rather than separate from it? What we have to do is find a way within the market system of ensuring that that market works for the common good. And we don't give any suggestion that it's a sort of an opt-in or opt-out. And consequently also the way in which markets can be harnessed for good and for the positives of a sustainable economy. And to be have an optimistic view view really for the place for this creativity. And maybe just one more thing before I finish. Markets in themselves are morally neutral. What makes a market ethical or unethical is the behaviour of the players within that market. Thanks Richard. Hank? Well, it was really nice to hear Anne speaking and uh, also to read a little bit of her uh, from the internet. So what really struck me is the use of the word enough or plenty and its etymological origin and so it's a kind of a restructuring of the more christian notion of a soberness but it has a more positive account i think that's really well done and it opens a total new discourse and that's also what she does and i, I believe this is very valuable and of course just as richard would say this whole question of sustainability not only of our natural environment but also of the way our institutions work is of course one of the great questions of our time
So let me just go on a little bit on what Richard said and also some reflections of myself. So the first thing that I was wondering or questioning when I heard Anne talking is the question of who is the we that speaks here? Because it makes a big difference whether the philosophy of enough is a political philosophy or whether it is more like a life philosophy. Because the moral content of the philosophy of enough is, I think, a very valuable form of, say, life philosophy. Somehow, how do I stand in life, or why do I wake up in the morning, and how do I relate to my environment, etc. But this is a different question from the political question, I, I believe. Because also, she seems to suggest that the question of morality is the same question as the question of politics. So in my view, I would say no, because politics is about making sure that there can be different views of morality. And I mean, this is, of course, true in democratic political systems. So perhaps we should elaborate on it, but it makes a difference. And it also makes a difference for the way this idea of enough is installed. Because it is a very specific, I would say, progressive moral idea. And it needs also to account for people who have other or different uh, moral views on life. So it cannot be totalitarian in this sense. Of course, we all know from Adam Smith, the wealth of nations. So from this, we then gained our idea of the economy is about seeking self-interest. It actually is said that uh, in the theory of moral sentiments, the trade is, when push comes to show, about trust. Mm. It's not at all about, or not only about self-interest. It's about trust. And, and this is, of course, also very common sense, because if trust plays no role in the economy, then everything needs to be dealt with contracts, but you cannot describe every contract in detail and everything that can happen in detail. So even in a very highly sophisticated contract, there is still, there's always some space for trust, so to say. And I think that within economics, there's always the possibility of morality because it is built on trust. Uh, um, yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah. Uh, if I could just come back on that, Hank, uh, that was an excellent exposition of Adam Smith. Of course, he wrote the theory of moral sentiments in 1758, nearly 20 years before the wealth of nations. And he developed the idea in the moral sentiments of the idea of sympathy. Now, mm -hmm. that's a very interesting concept in itself because it implies something of the unity of humanity. It implies that we are to have natural sentiments implanted within us of sympathy and love and care and benevolence. And so I think Adam Smith is often misrepresented as the economist of the unlimited free market. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's what he meant. And as you were saying, Hank, linking this in with trust and applying it to the modern day, no business can operate in the marketplace today without the trust of the people. So what I found interesting is that and says that the philosophy of enough is supposed to be hopeful rather than cynical or pessimistic or naive. Or, or naive. And so I find it's, it's very courageous, but I also found it complex. So for example, now in the Netherlands, Amazon is coming in. Yeah. And, so, and I mean, this Amazon is really a bulldozer for small entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah? And, and I mean, this is just an example of all of, and I mean, if you, if you would go to France, you see the same with all the big supermarkets, such as small croissanteries that are gone. I mean, I always find it very difficult to be, be hopeful about turning this around, these economic shifts that highly impact society. And also, 
question if this is a political task or not. And uh, so the developments are so fast that, that I wonder if, if it is a matter of hope or whether it is a matter of keeping things within limits, so to speak. So it's a matter of perspective, I guess. Yes, I think another word that Anne used and which I think fits in with what Henk has just been commenting on is the word locality. Well, that's the word I've used to describe what she was talking about with village shops and family firms. Yeah. Um, I mean, Amazon represents globalization. And uh, although I don't think you can just abolish globalization, it does generate a whole number of complexities. And we've seen some of the alienation that it creates with different communities. And so you discover different communities remote from the centers of power leading to the growth of populism and all of the complexities that brings. So one thing I think we can do is to give weight and emphasis to locality. So you give weight and emphasis to locally grown produce. You give weight and emphasis to local family firms. It also brings in another political complexity, and that is, so if I look around, the people who are able to turn to this locality, so to speak, is really what is at least in the Netherlands, is always middle or high middle class. A lot of people also in our Western countries are in precarious situations and they don't have the means or the knowledge or whatever to get to these social classes. They can't afford it, yeah. I think it's an interesting point, Henk. Uh, I'd love to carry on talking about this, but we've run out of time. But actually, I think the point, and it's been made several times, is that the issue about hope. Things are very complex, but there is a sense that we we are totally in agreement with Anne about the moral values concerned. It's how do you manage, given the circumstances, to tip the balance a little bit in favour of, of something more ideal than where we are now? Mm-hmm. And just to finish off, certainly my view from my organisation is we're always looking for small things flowering. You know, and I think even in the Netherlands, despite the logic of what Hank was saying, I've seen, for instance, in Utrecht, where the local community has specifically attempted both to create something bottom-up, if you like, you know, that is local, but also to take real attention about the inequalities, which are a very important issue currently because of widening inequality, and are actually making it possible for people who are disadvantaged to also take advantage of this. So Mm -hmm. there is hope, but still it's a huge task to turn the ship round, isn't it? That was David Sonek of the EHFF interviewing Enk van Eyl and Richard Turnbull, who are commenting on a talk given by Anne Ryan on the concept of enough, which she delivered at the FASTA event last December, living well in the face of climate and ecological crises. Please tune in to our next podcast at the end of March. You can comment on our podcasts on the FASTA website at www.fasta.org. Many thanks to David Somek for hosting the interview, to Henk van Oyl and Richard Turnbull, to Anne Ryan and to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. Music